A reading from the book of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah chapter 6. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. A reading from the Psalms of Solomon, Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, 
in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. A reading from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we're doing an introduction to understanding the New Testament. I'm not going to do Roman numeral one, the review. Uh, so we started in on Roman numeral two, and we looked at uh, the eternal covenant and the immutability of covenant. So one of the things that, uh, if you're not familiar with that passage that's listed there in Galatians 3, you should understand that a covenant, once God puts a covenant into force, nothing can undo any of the provisions of that covenant. You can't make alterations in it. I can't borrow $100 from John Gray and tell him I'll pay him back in two weeks and then say, you know, oh, a month later, John, I'm just going to pay you back $50 and I'm going to spread it out over the next year. That, I, you know, I'm making a change to the covenant that he hasn't necessarily agreed to. Right? So, um, you know, make sure you familiarize yourself with that passage that's listed there in, in Galatians 3. Because it'll help you understand if you realize that the whole Bible is a progression that comes out of the eternal covenant, flows through the Adamic or Dominion covenant, 
which throws through the Abrahamic covenant, throwing through the Mosaic covenant, and then the Davidic covenant, and on into the New Testament. And the next covenants always fulfill the previous covenants. They don't undo them. And so there's a popular idea in Christianity today called antinomianism that uh, misquotes some verses from Paul and uh, basically states that... um, that um, because Paul says we're not under the law, that the law is not important. But Jesus, Jesus refer if you've been persuaded by that wrong idea, uh, then you get into this thing that as a Christian I can just live however the way I want, which is uh, heresy. And so um, I would encourage you to look at Matthew 5, uh, start in verse 14 through, through Matthew uh, 5, 48, the rest of the chapter, where Jesus discusses that he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it, and the Greek actually means to enable you or empower you to do it. He put, came to put it into force. And so the only difference between the law of the Old Testament and the New Testament is that They were both only livable by grace, but God took Israel through a long journey, and he continues that journey into the New Testament. And frankly, most Christians go through a journey where we try to approach God in performance base, and we fail. Because you will only be empowered to obey God when you're walking Uh, totally dependent on his grace, as Stephen made clear in his message today. And I echo John Gray's sentiment. Uh, Please uh, listen to the podcast of those. Those are, uh, you know, on GCF podcast, they're listed under uh, Sunday Bible study, I think. And uh, so, and Josiah usually has them up by Sunday night. So even if you were here for that, it might be good to, to listen to it again. And if you're less than 30 or 40 years in Christ, uh, it would probably help you a lot. Or maybe if you haven't been a Christian 50 years, if you haven't read the Bible a thousand or so times, it probably would help you. Uh, but if you've read the Bible more than a thousand times and you've been more than a, a Christian more than 50 years, then you can skip listening to it again. So um, I don't think there's a lot of people in our church that fit that category. So anyway... Um, you know, in Exodus, when the when uh, there, I wish I had time to reread the whole passage that's listed there, but um, Exodus nineteen one through oh maybe the whole chapter is all about you know if you will indeed obey my voice and and hearken to my commandments, then you'll be my special treasure, my my royal priesthood, my holy nation in the earth. That's quoted in First Peter two nine and applied to us as the church. And Israel responds by saying, all that you have said we will do. And uh, so I, I understand, although they didn't tell me, but I understand some people told other people they didn't like that. My, that I uh, said that I thought that was the most wicked thing ever said. But I think we underestimate uh, how wicked self-righteousness is. And how deep it is ingrained in our sin nature. Uh, Religious people, which we all have a a temptation to become, 
The first thing after I became a Christian, I became a Pharisee. And I remember the first several years of my Christian walk, uh, being very zealous for the Lord, reading the Bible an average of at least three hours a day, uh, going to three or four fellowship meetings a week, uh, witnessing, being very on fire, and at the same time battling self-righteousness and crying out to God, set me free from this Lord. And it was quite a journey that I was... uh, impressed how deeply I was full of self-righteousness every day. I actually read the book of Galatians every day for a couple of years. And I actually specifically remember sitting under, uh, I was in Mobile, Alabama at a conference with a guy named Bob Mumford teaching to a crowd of a few thousand people. And I remember a spirit of religion leaving me, me in the middle of that teaching. And I could feel it leaving And I knew that by the grace of God, God had helped me battle this whole religion thing. And eventually, sometimes you get deliverance because a spirit can't stand being in you anymore because the atmosphere that that you've you've created in your walk with God is not conducive to that spirit. And sometimes spirits will just leave because they can't stand it there anymore. And that's really happened in the middle of a very powerful teaching, and I was very aware of it leaving. And I was very aware that it was the spirit I had been battling for years. And I stand behind the statement, even if you don't agree with it, that all that God said we shall do is probably the most wicked thing that was ever said in the, in the history of humanity. Um, look at Romans uh, 10, 3 through 4 for me. Got to close out of... Uh, one thing and open another. So my phone is a little slow, like its master. So uh, Paul is speaking, of course, in Romans 10, brother, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them. He's speaking of Israel in this in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Uh, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. This is huge, by the way. When almost every person who gets touched deeply by the Lord and gets on fire for the Lord goes through a period where your zeal surpasses your knowledge. I always joke that we ought to lock those kind of people up for a year or two so that they won't witness so badly and drive so many people away. Uh, you know, I uh, pretty much everybody in my life had to go one way or another after I became a Christian. They, you know, they either hated me or they uh, became Christians. Um, so I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. That's what Exodus 19.8 is about. Seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Do you know submitting to, to grace is actually a, a subjecting, a submitting. Grace offends us. Grace says, you are really, really, really pathetically wicked. <laughs> you are every motivation and attitude of your heart is is disturbed, uh, false, prideful, self righteous, lying, greedy, 
covetous, selfishly ambitious, and uh, lazy, and all sorts of other sinful attitudes and motivations. That is the essence of who we are outside of Christ. And only Christ can do anything about all that. And all our efforts to do something about that in and of ourselves are frankly wicked. All that God has commanded, we could never even want to do. You know, I, uh, you know, my first battle with all that was uh, I was under conviction to quit smoking weed uh, for about six months. And I had a tendency to smoke around $50 worth of marijuana each day, usually 30, 40, 50 joints. And uh, it was my whole life. I loved it. I, you know, it was my God. And, uh, and actually, when I got delivered from the demon of marijuana, I was unconscious. The people who cast the demons out of me told me about this later, and it actually spoke out of my mouth and said, I'm not coming out. I'm king of Greg's life. And the, the people casting it out said, no, you're not. And I had already quit smoking pot by then. Uh, so, uh, you know, when God was always dealing with me about it, I would always, like any addict, if you have an addiction, you always bargain with God. Oh, I'll quit drinking next week, or I'll quit being lazy, uh, you know, next Friday. <laughs> you know, let me just be lazy this week, one more week before I get diligent, you know. Whatever, you're always bargaining, and you're putting it off. And so, uh, you know, it was only when I came to a place where I said, Lord, I can't quit smoking weed. I can't even want to want to obey you. And, not, you know, that helped me learn. I apply that to everything. If God wants me to be more gracious, Lord, I can't even want to want to be more gracious. You've got to save me. You've got to regenerate me. I don't just need some counseling and some reformation. I need a, to become a whole new creation. And that's the gospel. And that's actually what God is doing. The, a major theme of the whole Old Testament is that God always meant to have a people for himself, a people for his own possession, that lived according to his law and his ways to demonstrate his glory to the nations around us. And a main point in that is you can't even want to want to do that. So if you're trying, if you say all that God says we will do, you're at the wrong starting point. And that's the biggest lesson of the entire Bible. God allows Israel to fail over, over, and over again. And yet, the Pharisees were still trying to establish their own righteousness in the time of Christ by self-effort. And they hated Jesus because performance base hates grace base. If you are not grace based, grace based people will irritate you. That you'll you'll actually kind of get upset when they when you're around them and when they talk. Um, so anyway, um, this fits back into our into our overall theme in this outline that hopefully we'll get through someday that uh, is, is how to understand the New Testament. But the New Testament um, is a continuation from the Old Testament, uh, but it's a fulfilling 
of the, of the Old Testament. And God is, continues all the way from Exodus through uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to, uh, to be teaching his people that you can't do his will in and of yourself and to prepare them, the law becomes our tutor to lead us to grace. Who is Christ? Grace is Jesus. First John chapter 1, that the law came through Moses, that is a level of God's grace came through Moses, but grace and truth were fully realized through Jesus Christ. He is the only complete manifestation of grace. And God is trying to break down everything in your life that's not leaning on Christ. Every area that you will lean on your own efforts and your own studies and your own power and your own self-righteousness, God will allow you to experience the school of failure so that you can learn to walk in his power and his glory and his grace. So hopefully that's all more clear to us now. So let's move on to the law and the prophets. Um, again, uh, we, oh, the, the, I forgot where I was going, so I, the verses I just mentioned in Matthew are right there. Um, so let's talk a little bit about theonomy versus antinomianism. Antinomianism, if you look down at the bottom where it says, note, discuss, cart before the horse, misinterpretations of Romans 6, etc., those are all verses about uh, works and grace. And they all say that we're not under the law. But what we're not under is that deception of thinking we can do the law and, and so forth. The law still implies, but the, the law was written on tablets of stone and it commanded hearts of stone from the outside in and the hearts of stone actually were flattered by the law to, to manifest their rebellious sin nature. Look at, study Romans 7 to, to get that. And so what grace does is grace rewrites the law, the same law, doesn't change, on hearts of flesh that are created by God to want to please him that you receive in Christ. And the the law, you are now empowered through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, bringing us the manifest power of the risen Christ and the, the ascended, reigning, glory, glorified Christ. We are now empowered to love God and love his law the way we were always meant to be before sin corrupted everything. So that's what you should get out of those verses in uh, Matthew 5. And then, of course, if you know the, the prevalent uh, idea that affects about 90% of the evangelical world called dispensationalism, you know that there's a lot of idea that the things of, that apply to Israel don't apply to the church. So look at Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion. What was Mount Zion? Mount Jerusalem is built on Mount Zion. Mount Zion was a term for God's holy people 
the city of God, the mountain of God, the people of God. And God is now telling the Christians, that's who you are. You have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God. That's where Teresa and Noel live. The heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. How does the sprinkled blood speak better than the blood of Abel? God said to Cain, I hear the blood of your... of your brother crying out for vengeance. And what does the blood of Jesus cry out? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, which would you rather have? Father, make them pay for all their murders, <laughs> murderous and angry thoughts and so forth, and all, all the anger that, uh, that Jesus defines as murder. If you have anger toward your brothers, you're a murderer, according to Jesus. Wouldn't you rather have the blood of Jesus crying out, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do? Abel's blood was shed involuntarily. Christ laid down his life. He says, no one has power to take it from me. He laid down his life voluntarily. And Abel's blood cried to God for vengeance from the ground. And in a mystery that, that is profound yet glorious, Christ's blood was sprinkled before the mercy seat of heaven and grants us access behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. Christ's blood speaks better than the blood of Abel in many ways. And we are now the city of the living God. And we are now Mount Zion. So there's a continuation of the covenants. What God always wanted and still wants is a people that manifest his glory by their love for him and by their love for one another. You know, I sometimes have worldly people tell me, uh, I'm just amazed at how you guys serve each other and help, you know, somebody moves, there's all sorts of people show up and all this. People in the world notice that. Having lived in Christian communities since 1974 and 75, I don't know how people live other, another way. You know, the Beatles had a song that went, all the lonely people, where, all, where do they all come from? I'm so amazed at how many people that you meet are so lonely. And God wants the church to be his answer for that. Now, third way that, the new, that there's continuity between the covenants is incarnational creationism versus pietistic neoplatonism. Now, that sounds like big words, I guess, to some. So let's break them down. Incarnational means it's, it's birth into flesh and blood people. It's not some th abstract theoretical thing. And it's all through the creation. 
Now, to, to get the full impact of this, you would need to understand how the, uh, the Greco-Roman culture thought of the creation, okay? So lots of you probably know there was a guy named Alexander the Great who in a 10-year period when he was 30 years old, or 20 years old, he started and then he died when he was 30. And then those last 10 years of his life, from the age of 20 to 30, he conquered everything from what is now Greece and Macedonia to India and everything around the Mediterranean as you go south through Syria and Israel and then as you turn west towards Egypt and Libya and so forth, he conquered all of that area in less than 10 years and made it one kingdom. And a lot of you know Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, so you've probably heard of Socrates, who's really Socrates. And, uh, um, and Socrates had his philosophy written down by two of his disciples, mostly by Plato, but he had another disciple called Aristotle. And Aristotle was Alexander the Great's personal tutor when he was growing up. And so he convinced Alexander the Great to create a culture worldwide that we now call Pan-Hellenism. Pan, the word for all, and Hellenism, the word for Greek, you know, Greek culture. And so whenever Alexander conquered an area, he would allow the people to keep their religions and speak their language as long as they also spoke Greek and embraced the Greek uh, pantheon and the Greek quasi-humanistic ideas and so forth. So he uh, started a, a period of time that went well, that went to about the collapse of the Roman Empire that lasted for 800 years, where the entire Mediterranean world embraced Greco-Roman culture. And so if you were a, re a person who read or were educated in those, in those centuries, you would know your national language. That's what happens in Acts chapter 2. There's 17 national languages mentioned. And you would know Greek and you'd know Latin. Right? And so, in knowing those things, you would be influenced by their worldview and by their culture. So it's important to understand that when Christianity starts to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, it's invading pan-Hellenistic culture. And there's a great clash between those worldviews. And that clash has defined Western culture throughout its 2,000-year history. It's basically a battle between Greco-Roman humanistic ideas and Judeo-Christian biblical ideas, and we're still in that battle. And that's what the fight in our culture is all about all the time. And so Christians bury their heads in the sand and go, I don't want to learn all those big words. Which is nonsense. Because you're in the battle even if you try to deny you're in the battle. Just trying to pretend you're not in the battle won't keep the missiles from flying through your head. So in 1 John, uh, and also in John verse, chapter 1, ver, through, uh, verse 1 through verse 14, John lays out the idea of the incarnation. 
And what you need to understand is to a Neoplatonic Greek worldview, this is, this is radical evil heresy stuff he's speaking. Because the Greeks, because of Plato's influence, saw the material world as evil. That's why Greco-Roman culture and thought gave birth to Gnosticism, which is a huge part of the evangelical culture today. You need to know this because most evangelicals are secret Gnostics without knowing it. Read Philip Lee's book, Against the Protestant Gnostics. So when, when John is writing, he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, that's heresy to the Platonic people. The real godly things are unseen ideas. What we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested, this is like pornography to, to a Greco-Roman person. This is, this is outrageous wickedness. And we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He's talking about the incarnation of Christ. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also. The reason we're proclaiming this is so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy, some translations say your joy, may be made complete. So the incarnation is a huge deal because it affirms a basic idea of the Old Testament and carries it back into the new, that when God got done creating each day, remember several days God evaluated the creation. Don't you do that? I've always, you know, I've worked a lot in the construction industry since I was in grad school. And I was always amazed at how many guys wanted to finish the job, get their tools cleaned up, and get out of there. And they thought I was nuts that I would, after we cleaned up the tools and everything, I'd stay an hour and enjoy what we made. And most people thought, what a waste of time. But I don't I don't think it was a waste of time. I just spent 12 months remodeling this house. I'd like to look at it for a little bit. We charged them $200,000 for our work, so it better be a good job. So, uh, so in the Greek world, this idea is heresy because they looked at material things as some uh, unnecessary manifestation of the pure ideals. And so many Christians kind of fall into a worldview that's, that's somewhat like this. But when God got done making the, the days of creation, remember how he said, it's good. Up until the sixth day, now, we don't have any little kids in our room, Mary. Anyone under? Uh-oh. Put your, put your uh, fingers in Samuel's ear. No. Um, when God uh, made, on the sixth day, he made Adam and Eve. 
And as far as I understand sin and how it works, Adam was probably a very handsome man. And Eve was probably one of the most beautiful women that ever has been on this earth. And when they were created, they were naked. And they were created to be married and have sex. And it wasn't until that was complete that God changed his evaluation from behold, it's good, to behold, it's very good. <laughs> I always remind uh, young, young uh, folks of that just before their wedding. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so um, the truth of the matter is, is we fall into a kind of thing in the, in a lot of times in evangelicalism where we think that uh, the physical part of life is some necessary evil. So if you don't have self-control, get married, which is a totally twisting of what Paul, the way people relate to it, it's totally twisting what Paul says. And even in, as Christianity expanded, in the East, uh, the, all the presbyters and overseers and eventually the, the, the idea of priest developed, which is a non-biblical idea that the Reformation restored the priesthood of all believers. But as that idea developed, all the ministers in the East got married. It, around the 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, it became more and more common in the Western church, rooted in Rome, for the ministers not to get married. Mostly that was because the empire was falling apart to the barbarians. That's why Constantine, when he was converted to Christ, and he, he issued the Edict of Milan that, that made Christianity legal for the first time, it's often called the Edict of Milan because he was in the city of Milan when he issued it. It's sometimes called the Edict of Constantine and it's sometimes called the Edict of Toleration. But that can be confusing because there's several other documents in human history that are called the Edict of Toleration. But uh, it'll, it for the first time said, we're going to stop persecuting the Christians and from now on Christianity is legal in our, in our culture. But along with that, he moved the, the center of the Roman Empire from Rome to what uh, to Constantinople, which is today called Istanbul. Do you know why? Because the West was crumbling to the barbarians, and he knew it was never going to be able to hold out. And so Western priests, because they were invading a barbaric culture of Europe that, that was pagan with totem poles similar to our Native American cultures when, we, when Europeans came here, and because it was very, very dangerous to be a Christian and expand the, the gospel into those areas, that's why they built churches and, and uh, monasteries that were more like forts. And they used those as bases to enlighten the pagans around them and teach them reading and teach them both uh, Christian things and in some cases some classics and so forth. And uh, they... But, it, but you were risking your life. When I was in grad school, I, I wrote a paper on an 8th century Christian whose name is Boniface, and Boniface is Latin for bona, good. Uh, first, Boniface, good works. Uh, he, you know, and I, the title of the paper was Boniface, a good work. And uh, because Boniface would walk into these German pagan tribes 
and he would chop down their oak of, of worship or their totem pole. And as they were about to kill him, he would say, hey, before you kill me, if your God is God, why does he need your help? <laughs> then he preached Christ to him from there. And he never did get killed in doing it. I think that's a little bold myself. <laughs> you know, we're so afraid our sister won't like us if we talk about Jesus. But um, try chopping down their totem poles. So the basic idea is this. When I say incarnational creationism, the creation is very good. And a Christianity that sees spiritual things as good and material things as evil is not a biblical Christianity. That's why Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Because he hung out at parties and drank wine and ate good food and shared with the, the sinners. And the Neoplatonic Pharisees couldn't stand that. Because if you were spiritual, you stayed away from the bad kind of people in the bad kind of places. And you just, you know, worshipped and prayed and memorized Bible verses, but you didn't, like, enjoy food or something. Of course, all such uh, thinking leads to heretical living anyway, or, or what would I, uh, what's a better word for when you don't live up to your values? Contradictory? There's a better, hypocritical, good word, best, better word. Thank you. That's, yeah, because you're a hypocrite. Because you're like, oh, sex is terrible. But then when, when you get married, you really like sex. Right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and food is terrible. Let me tell you. I didn't get this by, without a lot of work, <laughs> you know. I really like food. <laughs> and and mo most, most of the meetings I have usually involve me taking you to lunch or dinner. <laughs> and uh, uh, So, you know, uh, the truth is the creation is all good, all of it. Music, art, it's all good. It's just that sinful man will twist it and it all needs to be recaptured to the Lordship of Christ. And so, um, that's one of the most important things you need to see is that the Old Testament makes it very clear that the whole creation is good. And the New Testament affirms that in a very dramatic way right from the beginning because God became a human being with flesh and blood, blood and bones and everything else. So right from the beginning of the New Testament, God crashes into our world and says the creation is good. Now, that's so important because people think uh, if you, say, enjoy fashion, you know, there's 
certain ladies in our church that I, I know like that are pretty good at uh, you know how to dress and how to look good and all that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, I was a teenager too, so I at one time it's hard to believe, right? Back in prehistoric times. <laughs> but uh, when Homo sapiens were first walking upright, no, I'm just kidding. Before the dark times, before the empire. No. Uh, and, and I know that we can battle with like looking in the mirror and, th- you know, and, and being narcissistic. And I'm sh- but the truth is, uh, for a young lady to want to be beautiful, it would actually be perverted not to. It's, you know, a lot of damage people who, a lot of young ladies who have a lot of damage from bad fathers and everything else don't care about their appearance and, that, and don't, and sometimes they have like, there's no hope I can look good or whatever. But l- listen, it's, it, to care about your appearance is not necessarily. Uh, sinful. It's just a matter of taking that and working all the time with Christ about your attitudes and motivations for why you want to do that. Um, You know, this whole dualistic universe that, you know, uh, doesn't celebrate the creation is not a Christian concept, even though it's rampant in the Christian church today. Let's flip over and look at the Dominion Cultural Mandate, uh, which Stephen also referred to in his teaching this morning. Genesis 1, God blessed them, and God said to them, be prayerful and boring. No, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Do you know what? that 69% of evangelicals are women and 31% are men? Do you know why? Because men are given an extra desire by God to be a conqueror. And if you have a wimpy, gutted gospel, no man's going to like that. Except wimpy men. Men have a need to punch someone. <laughs> I used to always wonder, because like uh, in our worship, I, would, I had this chair that I would always punch it, and it would go... Voof, voof. And uh, all the guys used to say, we're going to get you one of those bozo dolls with sand in the bottom that, you know, when you hit it, it comes back up. And I actually have hurt my uh, knuckles a few times uh, by punching the wall during worship because I was so excited about God. Why? Because you're supposed to be killing something, not people, but we're taking captive ideas. And we're fighting against the the improper knowledge raised up against the knowledge of God. And, you know, as Frankie Schaefer argued at one point in his book, Addicted to Mediocrity, there's a time in some cultures where if you're not profoundly angry, you have no righteousness inside yourself. 
If you are living in modern America and you're not a little ticked off, you're probably dead or asleep. You're certainly not awakened to Christ very much. If you're, you know, like, if Christ is in you, you will be highly motivated. And that's why you, like, you know, you'll probably like the idea of a Jedi warrior. You know, obviously, um, you know, I I used to have discussions with my kids about Star Wars and how it's a a somewhat Zoroastrian, but mostly Buddhist uh, underlying worldview with Christian allegories on on the surface. But the Christian allegories on the surface are a lot of fun. Like the swords, you know, what, what are they called? Lightsabers? You know, the sword of the spirit and a lightsaber, same thing. <laughs> no, just, don't, I'm just kidding. You know, Obi-Wan goes, if you strike me down, I'll only become more powerful than you could ever imagine. A clear reference to Christ, of course. So, um, the word subdue in, in Genesis one twenty six is have dominion in the ESV, the King James, or, or yeah, new, uh, I'm sorry, in the, the word is subdue in the New American Standard, which means to conquer, kick some butt. Step, you know, like step on... You know, remember when they brought uh, King, King um, not not Ahab, but uh, starts with an A, the King of the Amalekites, and and the, and they he stepped on his neck, right? You know, the, Romans sixteen twenty, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's not a passive uh, metaphor, right? That's a war kind of thing. The whole idea of stepping on, on someone's neck is, is a submission kind of thing. So, uh, have dominion is the translation in ESV, King James, New King James, and Revised Standard. Rule is New American Standard. Um, well, I'm, I'm guessing that I probably mistyped this and have probably subdue as ESV. Yeah, that is. And then King James, New King James, RSV say have dominion. New American Standard, Young's Literal, New English Translation, the 1599 Geneva, Holman Christian Standard Bible, and the Disciples, uh, I forget what DRA stands for, Dewey Reigns uses uses rain, and so does the Living Living Testament uses rain. I'm sorry, all those others use rule. So many have said this, but so this is not some new idea to Greg. But when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, he's saying, I, I've won the war. I've broken all the power of sin, all the power of Satan and his fallen angels and his demonic minions. And I'm ascending to the Father, and I am Lord of Lords, King of Kings. I reign now, not later. And you, as a Christian, are you, when you're born again, you're deputized to join the army and press the crown rights of that king into every area of life. That's what he means by go make disciples. A disciple is someone who sits under the teaching 
of another and is conformed to that, the disciples' values, attitudes, and, and ways of life and image. And he's, what the Great Commission is, is a lot bigger than to go and make, uh, you know, let's share the four spiritual laws with the whole world and have them come up and ask Jesus into their heart. That is, that is sick. To go make disciples is to, is to teach them an entire way of life that brings heaven to earth by bringing Jesus fully into them. So that everything in their life individually and corporately expresses the glory of Jesus Christ. Our marriages, you know, we have worked with lots of marriages who came to us in trouble and have had to, you know, but we have never had a marriage where we had a chance to disciple someone for two or three or four years that hasn't been begin good from the beginning. We've never even had a troubled marriage ever. Except ours. <laughs> Which hasn't been troubled for at least 20 years now. So about 25 actually. So, um, but we, we've never had something close to a divorce. Why? Because two mature Christians who really get, if, if you get into the place where you're opened up and you're really in, in Christian community and you're really being discipled and you're, you're not having trouble with relationships and so forth, two mature Christians have a pretty easy path toward a good marriage. And two people who aren't mature Christians have a very difficult path. And in fact, putting Christ before all things is how all things hold together in marriage. The first talk I ever had with Jason Hale was when he was first coming to Christ and I took him out to a restaurant, of course. <laughs> and I took a napkin and I drew a triangle and I put a little cross representing Jesus on the top and at the bottom of the triangle I put J for Jason and C for Carla. And I said, Jason... If you and Carla try to pursue each other, you'll be like two magnets that repel. But if you pursue Christ, you'll be constantly coming closer together. Because Jesus Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, if you're having trouble relationally, you probably need further growth in putting Christ first in practical ways. Because when Christ is first in my life, Christ has some very, very, very adamantly strong dictatorial opinions about what attitudes and motivations I treat my wife with. And I can't put Christ first and be bad to my wife. It's it's a contradiction. So teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, Jesus has commands about all of life. All he commanded us is the whole law of God. Every one of the Ten Commandments, if you... If, <laughs> man, it, Somebody must be really wanting me to quit. The clock is going like. Mm. I, I, 
I've been, I've been speaking for hours. <laughs> this may be the longest message you've ever heard. <laughs> Doesn't time fly when you're having fun? <laughs> oh, well. You know, I actually uh, did. I actually spoke one time six and a half hours to a group of about seventy leaders, but we did take a ten minute break in the middle. Um, my my subject was called the the failure of Protestant Christianity. It was a historical survey of the entire the entire uh, Protestant history and the current state of Protestantism. Anyway. So, where was I? I lost my train of thought when I looked up and saw that clock going. It's out of control. I think somebody's trying to say something to me. Um, now, look at Mark 16, 15. This is an interesting verse. And he said to them, go into the, all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Do you know it doesn't say to all creatures? In, or to all, does it say to all peoples? Some of you know who St. Francis of Assisi was. St. Francis used to go out to the woods and preach to the, to the woods. And he, he believed he was fulfilling this verse because he used to just preach to the creation. He, and he consciously thought, I'm preaching to the squirrels, to the birds, to the raccoons, to the trees. To the clouds, I, I'm preaching the gospel to all creation. And he would go out in the woods and do that. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong because the gospel is about the current reign of Jesus Christ and how that's going to bring a significant amount of restoration to all the creation. Read Isaiah 61 and read Isaiah 2 and lots of places. So, uh, another way there's continuity between the covenants is called the remnant principle. And that's simply this, that there's a scriptural pattern. If you remember uh, in 1 Kings 19, 10, 14, 18, remember Elijah. Elijah is full of vim and vigor and the power of the Holy Spirit, and he does the whole Mount Carmel thing where he... Uh, ends up killing 450 prophets of Baal. Pretty bold stuff. A little more bold than most of us. I've never killed 450 prophets of Baal. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, Jezebel, I've met her a few times, uh, <laughs> is a little upset at him. And so he's fleeing for his life, and he goes, you know, he went through a little manic depressive stage. In today's day and age, he would have been given Ritalin and so forth and, or whatever. But he gets a little manic and depressive and he goes, Lord, they've torn down your altars. They've persecuted your prophets. And I alone and left. Do you know, a lot of small little churches have a sectarian spirit. Like we're the last little remnant of faithful ones. We, us 37 people. That's a big mentality in a lot of fundamentalist churches that have premillennial uh, eschatology. We're the only little faithful ones left. And, uh, you know, the truth is, 
uh, God's, what does God say to Elijah? I've kept 7,000 people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. God always takes his current move out of his old move. Hear that. God always takes his current move out of his old move. And then he adds people to it. So there's always a remnant. And the essence of the New Testament is this. Matthew and Luke are primarily about a covenant lawsuit from Jesus who's standing very, very uh, self-consciously on the shoulders of all the prophets, bringing their exact same message for the final time to an Israel who's already gone into captivity and been brought back and been chastised and so forth because they still are thinking all that the Lord says we will do by our own strength and power, and they constantly become wicked and idol worshipers and so forth because that in itself is an idolatry. If you, if you can't see that, you're missing the whole point of the Bible. The, all that God says that we will do is the ultimate idolatry. And it leads to all the other idolatries. The Pharisees, God, was their self. Their own head. That's why Jesus says in Luke, the parable of the uh, Pharisee and the publican, it says the Pharisee was praying thus to himself because he's an idol worshiper and his idol was himself and his self-righteousness. That's why he had no grace for sinners. Hopefully this is, is clear to us. And so what is going on in the whole New Testament is Jesus is saying, the key verse in Matthew, he says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it'll be given to a nation or a people who produces its fruit. That is always happening in the earth. But that's the essential... uh, message of the whole New Testament when you read Acts, when you read the epistles, that the Judaizers are trying to stop Paul and the church from emerging and so forth, and finally they come under great judgment uh, when God sends Titus to destroy Jerusalem. But he doesn't do it for a whole generation after the day of Pentecost Because during that whole generation, a new people of God are emerging throughout the earth and spreading from city to city, and they're called the church. And during that time, God is bringing progressive judgment on the biological descendants of Abraham called Israel, but there's a good part of the New Testament church that's actually taken out of Israel. In fact, every author of the New Testament except Luke was a descendant of Abraham. Luke, I meant to say. I kind of didn't, didn't throw the K in very strong there. And I kind of said Lou, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but, um, and so God is fed up with Israel, and he's giving the kingdom to a new people, 
And the whole New Testament is about that transition. So the continuity between the covenants is very profound and very important. Or you miss the whole point. Does there, I'm hoping everybody gets that. Looks like that clock stopped at the right point. Point now? Is it 13 after 12? Is that, well, I better write. I'm uh, 25 minutes behind. It's the clock's fault. <laughs> I'm a good blame shifter. At least my wife tells me I am. Um, so there's a bunch of scriptures listed on, there under the remnant principle, but study it in light of the whole New Testament. Um, is Stephen around anywhere? Uh, there's, a, there's actually a book. Who's the, uh, some of you guys know this book that's based on Luke, uh, the covenant lawsuit of Luke. Uh, yeah, Jesus v. Jerusalem. And what's that author's name? Yeah, well, I remember when I came across that book, I, I cried. I don't even know I haven't read it yet. Because <laughs> I just, I knew, well, I read, a, I read like a, enough of it to get the point. Uh, which I often do. But um, the reason I cried is because I can remember when I first realized all this in my car, reading my Bible in, in 1998, and how I was reading Matthew for probably the 100th time, and all of a sudden I realized I, this whole evangelical idea that Matthew is about... Uh, Matthew is writing to the Jews to say they missed their Messiah is like the, like the tip of the iceberg of what Matthew's really about. Matthew is about Jesus standing firmly in the spirit of Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, what have you, and saying uh, a covenant lawsuit against Jerusalem and against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and all the other sects and saying... Uh, I'm going to take the, I'm done with you. And I'm done with you just like Jeremiah told them they're going into captivity and so forth. He's saying Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And I'm going to create a new city of God called the church. That's what Matthew's all about. And that's what, and there's a reason why the fathers put Matthew as the first book of the New Testament. Because until you see that, you can't understand the New Testament. Once you begin to see it as Jesus is the ultimate king, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate prophet, and he does all the things that the kings are supposed to do, and he fulfills the kingdom. And he fulfills all the priestly functions by his one great sacrifice for us. And he fulfills all the prophets by declaring that the kingdom is taken away from Jerusalem and Judea and Israel, and it's going to be given to a nation of followers who are disciples, who have a way of life that God had always wanted for his people, and he's going to empower them to do it. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to empower us to do it. That's what Matthew 5 is saying. And all of Matthew is about that covenant lawsuit. And it's the introduction to the whole New Testament because the, that 
word is fulfilled throughout the book of Acts. Peter and Paul die during the time that Jerusalem is being besieged. The emperor Nero killed both Peter and Paul approximately 66 to 68 AD, and Titus besieged Israel from 67 to 70 AD. And God is done with the apostles establishing the new people called the church, and he's, the whole New Testament has been written before 70 AD. A lot of conservative scholars say that John didn't write his gospel until 98 AD. They're full of uh, praise the Lord. And um, uh, that's, it's just nonsense. And all of the books were written by 64 to 66 AD. And they are about this process where the kingdom is being taken away from Israel. And Jesus is building my church. I will build my church in contradistinction to Moses' church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And the church will ultimately prevail in history. And Jesus will come back to a people prepared for him. A bride that's adorned gloriously. And that's gotten herself ready. If you want to understand what we're supposed to be about, observe any bride getting ready for their wedding. You know, like Teresa was down to her goal weight like months before the wedding. She had to slow down, right? Why? Because she was getting ready. And she had made herself ready. Right? It's just, the ladies always do that. The guys, you know, they're lucky if they show up. But uh, no, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, the ladies, they're ready, you know, and and. The, the church is a bride making itself ready. We're going to be down the weight. Maybe even Pastor Greg won't be fed anymore. Well, I don't know if that's going to happen. But, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, but do we get this? This is really important. There's an essential continuity between the message of the whole Bible because one covenant fulfills the next. So Jesus is building the community of his disciples, which is point B there. And um, we'll talk about the living New Testament practice and tradition next time because I was trying to get this all done today, but we're so far past the time I'll probably be stoned to death. I'm thinking I'm just going to, like in the Blues Brothers, put like chicken wire up here, and, and then I'll just go ahead and speak till like 1 o'clock. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you guys can throw bottles at me and stuff. Um, oh, we won't do that. Let's, let's get uh, John Gray. What's that? <laughs> yeah, we didn't say anything about beer bottles. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. All right, let's get everybody up here.